um, a few months ago, had the opportunity to travel to, to Lebanon and visit our our uh, partner church in Amsheet, Amsheet Baptist Church there. And the first day we were there was a Sunday morning, and so we got to attend the service and worship with them. Many of you have heard, heard about that already. And then there was a meal after the service, and it was, it was amazing. Like, all these people from the church brought all this wonderful Lebanese food, and we got to eat it. So um, um, Denise Nichols and I were there, and so we filled up our plates, and we got all this food. And then there was this one family sitting there that was, it was very evident, like they wanted us to sit with them. And so, you know, they're motioning and everything. So we sat down with them. And within a very short amount of time, we discovered that they did not speak a word of English. And so there was no one in the vicinity that really did, other than their, their teenage daughter had studied some English um, in school. And so we were trying to kind of make eye contact with her and like talk to her and like, you know, here's what we're trying to say. And she was not comfortable with English at all. And I think she actually just got up and left. And so then we're, we're like, wow. And so, you know, as a communicator, I, I read all this stuff about how, you know, your nonverbals is like 80% of, of your communication. Well, that wasn't the case that day. Like, I mean, our nonverbals were just not doing it. You know, we're just like, we're motioning, we're smiling a lot and stuff. But it, it's hard. I don't know if you ever had that experience of talking with someone and they just, they don't speak your language. And so it's really hard to get through and to, to have any kind of communication. But you don't actually have to go around the world, on the other side of the world, for that to happen. I mean, if we drew a five-mile radius around Grace Point, I, I know that you and I could run into many, many, many people in that radius that we don't speak their language. And I'm not, I'm not really talking linguistically. I'm not talking about English here. I'm talking about just a completely different background, completely different frame of reference. Like they, it may even be people who have been born here in the United States, but a different value system, a different way of viewing the world. And so you and I, like, and even inside of our walls, like it's not like all of us think the same. And so it's like when, when we, like we are charged as Christ followers to carry the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus to people who have never heard it before. And so we, we sang that, that beautiful song. I love that song, Glorious Day, because it just walks us through what Jesus did for us and what we have waiting for us on that glorious day. And so that's the message that we have to bring to people. And there are so many people in that five-mile radius who have never heard. And so we are charged, we, we do well to put the gospel in their language if they are to understand it. People who study missions call this contextualization. Pay attention to your context. And so a real-life example of this from an evangelist in India, he tells this true story. Uh, Once when I was traveling in India, there was a Brahmin of high caste hurrying to the train station. Overcome by great heat, and probably many of us can relate to that if you were outside at all yesterday, so great heat. Overcome by great heat, he fell down on the platform. The Indian station master, anxious to help him, offered him water in a Western cup. But the Brahmin would not take the water, although he was thirsty. I cannot drink that water, he said, I would prefer to die. The station master said, I'm I'm not asking you to eat the cup. And he said, I will not break my caste. I am willing to die. 
When, however, the water was brought to him in his own brass vessel, he drank it eagerly. And then he makes this observation. It is the same with the water of life. Indians do, do need the water of life, but not in a European cup. And I think if we put that into our context, what we would say is the, the people in our five-mile radius and in our county need the water of life in Christ, but they don't need it from our point of view, from our perspective. We, we need to get inside of their shoes and be able to speak their language. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're actually going to look at a biblical example of contextualization. And then we're going to talk about a new opportunity that we have as a church to pursue this in our sphere of influence in our community. So if you take a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, that's where we're going to be to continue this series. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one on a seat close to you there. We're in this series called Love Outside of Our Walls, and we've been talking about how uh, we have the privilege as Christ followers of getting saturated in his love. We sang about his love earlier. The love of God is rich and pure. We can get saturated in his love, and that is a great privilege. But if we just stay saturated, I, I heard this great illustration recently, and so I thought I'd, I'd share this this morning. It's kind of like a sponge. Like the purpose of a sponge is to get soaked up but then to get wrung out. If a, if a sponge gets soaked up and stays soaked up, it's just going to mold, and it can't really do anything more. So what we're called to is to get soaked up, to get saturated with God's love, and then to go, go share that with others, to go ring out on others. And one of the ways, the primary way that we share God's love is by being a witness of Jesus. Jesus called us in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so the, the book of Acts is the chronicle of these expanding spheres of influence. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, was at the point of that spear. He's like traveling all over the empire as a witness for Jesus. Today we're going to see him in Athens. And so he's going to talk first with Jewish people who have some, he shares some context. He shares the Hebrew scriptures. He shares prophecies with them. He, they kind of speak the same language. But then he's going to also talk with what we might call pagans, people who have no knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, no knowledge of the true God. And we're going to see how he contextualizes his message. Let's start in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, the them is his missionary companions. He got there ahead of them. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, before we read on, I just want to point out something here. Paul, in verse 16, is provoked in his spirit because he sees all of this idolatry. He sees people worshiping false gods. That's, that's an appropriate response, is to be provoked by that. We want God to be honored as the one true God. That's what he calls for. But, but then look at his response in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with people who thought differently. What, what I see today a lot of in our world is Christians getting provoked by a lot of things, which honestly oftentimes don't have anything to do really with who, who God is. We just get provoked by stuff. And then instead of reasoning with people, we just yell at them and we condemn them. 
And so I, I think we do well to follow Paul's example here. We, we should be provoked when we see people around us who have not yet been introduced to the true God, but when, then we want to reason with them, and he gives us a good model of how to do that. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers there in Athens also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. People of Athens loved philosophy. They loved the world of ideas, and they would just spend a lot of time just sitting around talking about that. So here comes Paul talking with people about something that they're, they're not familiar with. Like, this is a, a new concept. He, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, and so they want to know more about this. They want this to, to kind of get vetted. And so they said, let's take him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was not a place. It was a group of people who listened to philosophies. They were kind of the gatekeepers of philosophy in Athens. And so any ideas would kind of get run through them to determine, is this going to get promoted or is it going to get shut down? So they wanted to bring him there. And as they're bringing him, as people are presenting him or urging him to the Areopagus, they insult him. So in verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? That word babbler is really an insult. Like it, it means uh, that he's, he's kind of a charlatan. He's kind of a show off. Like he, he thinks, he wants to make people think he knows a lot, and he really doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows. That's what that word means. But I love the fact that Paul does not get insulted by this. He doesn't, he doesn't let his ego get in the way. He's just excited to be able to share with, with these people. And so, so we want to read what he did say. But before we do that, I just want to point out the fact that this is a very different approach. What Paul is going to do here is very different than he would do when he went into a synagogue. So there are synagogues scattered all over the empire. First thing Paul would do when he goes to a new city is go to the synagogue because they speak a similar language, because they have the Hebrew scriptures, they have the prophecies of Jesus, and he would take them to what they were familiar with in those scriptures, and then he would point them to Jesus. With these people in Athens, he doesn't have any of that common ground. They, they don't know the Hebrew scriptures. They don't know any of these prophecies about Jesus. If he starts there, he's going to lose them. And so he finds some different common ground. Let's read in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul says he's, he's been walking around, he's been seeing, so Athens has been called the, um, the capital, the God capital of the world. Because there were so many gods, there were so many temples, there were so many statues, so many idols. And so Paul's been walking around, seeing all of this, and in the middle of all of that, he sees this one inscription to the unknown God, and he says, here's my entry point. I'm, I'm going you know, to start with that. What you recognize as unknown, 
I, I'm going to explain to you. And he starts with this backhanded compliment in verse 22. He says, I perceive, men of Athens, that you are in every way very religious. Okay, that's kind of a backhanded compliment. They probably took it as a compliment. He's not meaning it really as a compliment. But again, he's going for for common ground, and he says, I, I perceive that in every way. That, that word means there's, there's considerable mental activity that goes on in that. He's been giving this a lot of thought. He's been walking around the city, seeing all of these idols and saying, how can I get inside of their shoes? How can I speak their, their language? And so he starts, what he's going to do is start with some common ground, and then he's going to point them to Jesus. What he models for us is that we should witness in the language of our listeners. We, we don't witness in our language to try to get them to come onto our turf. We witness, we go onto their turf, and we, we witness in their language. We're speaking to where they are and taking them to Jesus. So, so here's, we're going to read now his, his brief message here. And I just want to give you an outline for that. This, this is where he goes with his message. He starts with God as the maker of all. And then God is personal to all, this unknown God that they, they don't know. And finally, he's the judge of, of all. So, starting with God as the maker of all in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, so you have to picture Paul standing in the midst of all these temples, in the midst of all of these statues, and he says there's not many gods, there's one God who made all, all things. And not only is he the maker of all things, but he is personal to every person. In verse 26, this God who made everything, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quotation. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now you talk about speaking the language of your listeners. He's using their own poets to, to talk about truths that he resonates with. Now he could have quoted scripture here. He could have, instead of saying we are his offspring, he could have said that man, male and female have been made in the image of God. It's the same concept, and he would be quoting Genesis, but he doesn't do that. He quotes their poets that they're familiar with, and he uses the same concept, but coming from their vantage point. This would be like for us today, if you're talking with someone that has no knowledge of Scripture. Before you start sharing Scripture, and you, and you should get to that because we need to share the truth with them. You can start with, maybe you reference a movie that they're familiar with. Maybe you reference the Lord of the Rings or one of the Narnia movies that uses symbolism that, that relates to Scripture, but then you take them from what they're familiar with and then move them to God's truth. That's what Paul is, is doing here. So this God who is the maker of all, who is personable, personable, 
He is personal. So, so far, this message is, is pretty palatable. I mean, so far, this is not really offensive, but now Paul is really going to press into the gospel, and this is where he's, he's going to lose some people. In verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. See, see, Paul is, he's completely upending their theology. Their, the, their picture of God is that man makes God. I mean, that's what they see visually. But, but Paul is saying, no, it's, it's the reverse. God makes man and he is then accountable. Verse 39, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So now he's pressing in with something that's, that's going to offend some people. There's an accountability here. There's a day of judgment coming. There's a man who has been appointed to judge, and God has affirmed him in that role by raising him from the dead. He's referring to Jesus. And when he starts talking about the resurrection from, from the dead, this is when he starts to lose people. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That, that's going to be the response of some people, but, but others had a different response. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. So he's an Areopagite, meaning he's a member of that Areopagus. They're the people who are vetting these ideas. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So if we look at it was, was this message a success or not? I mean, if we look at it numerically, there's not a whole lot of people we see here responding. But if we look at the fact that they are starting from far, far, uh, a, a very different mindset from where Paul is taking them, it's amazing that anyone came along at all. And that, that's something we should expect. The, the further that someone is from God's truth, when we start to talk with them, probably the longer it's going to take for them to embrace God's truth. So we should just be patient with that process. That's not always the case. Sometimes God just turns the light bulb right on for people, but we shouldn't be surprised if it's going to take a while. And so the further someone starts from God's truth, the more important it is to witness in the language of our listeners, to get inside their shoes and understand where are they first and where can I get on common ground with them so that then I can move them forward to learn about Jesus? So this all applies to personal conversations that we have. And we're going to talk more about that next week. We're going to talk about being witnesses in our spheres of, of influence personally. But today I want to talk about what we're doing in this regard as a church and a new initiative that we believe is going to, give, to open more doors and create more, more bridges. Let me just talk really quickly about three things that we're doing already to contextualize. The first one is you're holding in your hand is a Bible. So we don't think about this all the time, but the Bible wasn't originally written in English. 
So to speak the language of our, in our context here, if, if we were trying to study from a, an original language Bible, Hebrew and Greek, we would, we would all struggle with that, including me. Okay, I, I work at that, but uh, I wouldn't be you know, as comfortable as I am in English with that. So that's a way of contextualizing. A second way that we contextualize is with our music. If we could get in a time machine and go back 40, 50 years to First Baptist Church of Newtown at Grace Point um, on State Street, what we would, if we were there on a Sunday morning, we would hear an organ. And so music style has changed over the years, and we've said we, we want to speak the language of our culture with our music, because music is huge in, in our culture. So we want to use the same kinds of biblically-based concepts and words in our songs, but we want to set them to instrumentation and style that is more typical of what people are used to hearing in their, their everyday life, so that when they come through the door, it's like, oh, wow, I can, I can relate to, to this music. A third way that we contextualize is just how we do our messages on a Sunday morning. We always start, whoever's speaking, always starts with some kind of a story or illustration or something that's pretty broad-reaching to relate to as many people as possible. And then we take from that point, so for example, this morning when I'm telling a story, probably most of us have at some point tried to have a conversation with somebody who speaks a completely different language and you've experienced that barrier and so we go from that point, from that common experience that we have, and then move towards what God has to say to us today and look into to the scriptures. So those are three ways that we're doing this already. Let me talk about a new way that our church leadership has been praying about that we can do this together as, as a church. A little bit of background. Our, our elders and staff meet twice a year for a retreat. And this year's retreat was last month, at the beginning of April, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, some, sometimes our retreats are more work than others. Sometimes we're trying to solve some major issue that's, that's going on, and so those aren't as, as fun. This year it was fun because we're, we're coming out of COVID, at least we feel like we're coming out of COVID, and um, uh, the Lord has been blessing us financially, and so we just felt like we have freedom to dream. And uh, what, you know, how might God want to use us in new ways and, and fresh ways? And so we, we wrestled at that weekend retreat with three questions. We'll put these up on the screen. The first question was, um, how do we define our immediate community? As we think about where God, who God wants us to reach outside of our walls, what is that immediate community? That's not a super easy question for us to answer right here geographically. It was easier to answer when we were First Baptist Church of Newtown at Grace, well, before Grace Point, um, in, at State Street, because we were actually in the borough. Um, people walked to church. It was like part of, it was like in a community. Like no one walks to church here. I mean, no, no one's going to do that. And it's really kind of hard to determine, like, who do we, uh, minister to. Like we're, we're at the point, that's part of why it's called Grace Point. We're at the point of three townships that come together. So we have uh, Newtown Township, we have Upper Makefield, and we have Lower Makefield. And so it's almost like we, we don't even feel like we're in any of those school districts. Um, so it's just, it's just kind of a little bit of a challenge. So that was the first question. It's like, who, how do we define our community? Once we know the answer to that, we can go on to the second question, which is, uh, what needs in the community could be bridge-building opportunities. 
So once we know what community we're, we're reaching, what, what are the needs there? And that's a challenge as well in this area because a lot of people, like sometimes some churches are in a space where, in an area where there's a lot of material needs. Uh, maybe there's homelessness or, or poverty, and it can be really obvious, like, hey, here's something we can do. Here's a need that we can meet that might open the door for us to, to share the good news about Christ. We don't have a lot of material needs in our community, and in fact, we live in an area where a lot of people don't want to admit any needs that they have at all. They just want to look like they have it all together. So that's a challenge as well. So we, we were wrestling with that question. Then the third, if we can answer the first two, what's our community, what, what kind of needs could we meet? Then the third question is then what initiatives will increase engagement, impact the most people, and position us for, for future growth? And so we wrestled with those questions. We prayed through them. And on the first question, we, we were really struggling as long as we were trying to define who we minister to um, as um, geographically. But where we started, where the fog started to clear was when we started to look at it demographically. And we said, okay, what is true of the people that we're reaching of, of people that God is bringing through our doors, and also what is true of just our immediate surroundings. And what we landed on after a lot of prayer, a lot of, a lot of discussion, is that one of the things that is true in a primary way in, in our area is that our demographics are defined by family. So the, the census data says that 75% of homes in Bucks County have, a, have at least one school-aged child. So that's, that's, and that's a higher than average number for the state of Pennsylvania. And so we said, maybe this is an inroad for us. Maybe this is an opportunity if we do something to reach families. Um, and I'll, I'll just share anecdotally, I was talking about all of this in the last month with Dave Ritter, who's one of the, the previous pastors who was here uh, at Grace Point. And he told me that back in the 90s, the church did a phone survey of 400 people. And he said this was back in the days when there were phone books. So they opened up a phone book and they said, hey, let's just randomly call 400 people in our immediate region. And they asked them this, this question. What could, the, what could a church in this community do better to serve you? And so out of 400 phone calls that they made, 200 people were willing to talk and answer that question. And out of those 200 people, he said almost everyone, when they heard the question, their, their response was, uh, and, and again, here was the question, what could a church in this community do to better serve you? Their answer was, I'm good. I, I don't really need anything. But then he said there was often a pause and then they would say, but if you could do something for our kids. And so that was the kind of response they got um, back in the early 90s. And it's clear that that hasn't changed. And so we're seeing this as an inroad. Now, I want to say something to those of you who are in that 25%. Because some of you are, heard the word family and you're thinking, yeah, I don't fit that demographic. Maybe you used to. Maybe you haven't had kids. Maybe you're not married um, one of those demographics. Let me just assure you of, of this. We're, we're not changing any of our ministries internally in the church. We're, we're going to continue to minister to every age, every life stage. And so we want to meet you exactly where you are. 
What we're talking about here is defining an outreach opportunity for how do we reach into this community that's really challenging to reach outside of our walls. And actually, some of you who are in that 25% are actually really beautifully positioned to be able to help with this. Because some of you guys who maybe, maybe you're empty nesters and you've already done your work to kind of get your kids up. I mean, now maybe you have a little extra free time or you're just in a life position where you could really be, be part of this. And so really don't hear this as exclusive. I really prayed that nobody hears this as any kind of exclusion. This is us trying to identify in an area. For, for example, like if we were in a a town, if we were in State College, and I have a friend who's a pastor in State College at a converged church there, that's a college town. And so what they have set out to do is say, we, we want to minister to college students. And so that's not the demographic of a lot of their congregation, but it is a primary way that they can reach out into their community. So, so what we've done uh, to kind of help focus us as, uh, as a church is we've modified our vision statement, which hopefully many of you are familiar with, of building bridges for life change through Christ. We've modified that just a little bit for this outreach purpose to say we want to connect families for life change through Christ. We want to connect families in three ways. We want to connect families to Grace Point for the end result of connecting them to Christ. I mean, that's the ultimate goal in, in all of this is to connect people to Christ. So we want to connect people to Grace Point. And then secondly, we want to connect families to each other, to other families. We hear that from our young families at the church all the time. We, just, we want opportunities to connect with other parents. We want to be able to raise our kids in a village here and, and share um, ideas and opportunities to support each other. And then the third thing is we want to connect families within the family. We want to help connect family members to each other because we live in a day and age where uh, families are just getting torn and, and pulled in so many different directions, and some families need to relearn how to even connect with, with one another. So that's, that's where we're looking to invest in the next three to five years, and I'll just share a couple of, of ideas that have served. So, so we have our Middle East focus in, in Lebanon that we will continue to invest in, but just what are we doing here right in our neighborhood um, so that we don't trip over our neighbors on our way to serve in, in Lebanon? This is the, the way that we're looking to do that. A couple of ideas that have surfaced is just more of the fun events that we've done. So we're talking about Family Fun Fest coming up in how many days? Yes. Oh, good. Okay, you guys were listening. So um, though we've had, you know, tremendous response from Family Fun Fest, from One Winter Night. Let's do more of, of that, those opportunities where families are looking for wholesome things to do together. Uh, we've talked about the possibility of doing some lectures um, or, or training for parents, equipping for them, meeting the needs of, of families with special needs, um, possibly providing date nights for, for couples to be able to go and uh, to, to get away for the evening. Um, and there's lots more ideas. Maybe, maybe you've had some ideas that are surfacing for you even as we're talking about this today. And if you do, then I would encourage you to, to email those to uh, community at gracepointpa.org. We have some teams that are going to be working through some ideas and determining what are some actionable next steps and projects that we do towards this. If you were here last week, we talked about our mission priorities 
And we, we really believe this ties in and lines up with our mission's priorities of gospel transformation and whole life discipleship and church-centered ministry. I, I think it's really fun to see how God has been preparing us for this long before we even thought of this as a focus. But um, about a year and a half ago, God brought Jeremy Davis on as our student ministry uh, director, just recently brought on Sophie. Um, they're just, they're like the dream team uh, for ministering to our, our young people. So we're super excited to have them. We're also, we have a higher planned, and we're in the process now of, of looking at this for a coordinator of family and volunteer engagement, and that's going to work under the children's ministry area. But we had that planned a year ago, and so it's just kind of neat how God's kind of brought all of this together, and then we've had the opportunity in the last few weeks to minister to families through this tragedy in the, in the, um, in the area here, and so it just seems like God's affirming this direction, providing for a lot of it, and we're excited to see what God has in store. And I hope that um, I hope that we will all be a part of it. Let's let's be praying that God opens up opportunities to bridge into a a neighborhood, a region that's not not easy to reach. It's not easy for people to acknowledge that they have. A need, but let's just be praying that God is going to open doors and give us the opportunity to, to reach people for Christ. Let's pray. Father, you've placed us in this context here at this time, in this place, and uh, we want to learn, Lord, to speak the language of our listeners. We want to put, we, we want to speak your gospel in the language that people can understand because we want them to know Jesus. Jesus, you, you are beautiful. You are our rescuer. You are our deliverer. We want others who right now are living with no hope to know you in the hope that you bring. So we believe that you have much more to accomplish in this town, in this county, in this region, and we want to be part of that. Lord, I know the enemy will want to come against us. He's not, he does not want more people to know Christ. He does not want more people to be reached. And so we anticipate that he will make things difficult. But Lord, we want to press forward in the strength. We thank you, Jesus, that you have overcome the enemy. And so we want to press forward in your strength and watch what you will do. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.